Well, thank you, Tiggy. What a great ministry in song. I mentioned the first hour that it's really tough to preach after such a dynamic, overpowering song. Anything after that is anticlimactic. So uh, we probably should pray for 20 minutes and <laughs> give me a chance to recover. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for ministering to us. And it's a great thought, isn't it? His eye is on the sparrow. And are we not more important than sparrows? Jesus says in Matthew, yes, we are. So he must be watching over us as well. There are two problems that are common to all people. There is the problem of a, a sense of guilt for our past. And there is the problem of a sense of fear for our future. And I love the fact that Psalm 32 addresses, confronts, both of those problems. The fear of, or the, or the sense of guilt in the past, God promises forgiveness if we confess our sin. And for that sense of fear for the future, God promises guidance. The gospel has it all. Let's turn to Psalm 32 this morning, and we already began looking at Psalm 32. I hope those of you who are watching on the internet will also open your Bibles. I'm glad that you are watching at this time. As we join together in looking at this wonderful portion of Scripture to deal with these common problems among humanity, guilt and fear. Now, you remember that David wrote this psalm right after he committed a horrible sin, actually multiple sins, the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then he killed her husband Uriah so that he could marry Bathsheba and make it look like the child that was conceived was truly his after marriage. His plan of cover-up didn't work, and so for a year he kept silent about his sin. He didn't want to talk to God about it. He hid, and he didn't want to talk to people about it, so he denied that anything had happened and tried to make it look like everything was above board until Nathan the prophet confronted him. And we read that Nathan said to David, You are the man. He told him a story about someone who had taken someone's prized lamb, even though he had a big flock to choose from. And David said, a man who does something like that must die. And Nathan said, you're the one. You're the man. David broke down in repentance, and he confessed his sin to God. And one of the most amazing things in all Scripture is what we read in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 12, where Nathan says to David, God has forgiven your sin. Now, if that had been me, I would have put David through a few hoops first before I gave him any kind of assurance. I mean, you're going to have to be miserable for a long time, and you've got to do penance, and you've got to pay, and, and all. God doesn't do that. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even murder? Yes. Even adultery? Yes, even all the other Ten Commandments. That is grace. And so David writes this psalm. He starts out mentioning how happy and blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the one 
or you could translate it, what joy there is for those who are forgiven, whose sins are covered by the Lord, whose sin is put out of sight. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, they can be completely honest before God and completely honest before people. They don't have to in any way live behind a facade. They don't have to be hypocritical in their soul and in their activities. No deceit. Then David says in verse 3, you know, I, I wasn't always in a position of forgiveness. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Why did you groan, David? Verse 4, for day and night your hand, Lord, was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of a summer's day. So David had physical trauma. He was battling emotionally with this groaning. The conviction of God was upon him. There was spiritual stress. And he had no energy to, to live life. That's what happens when you're a phony and you're using all of your energy to keep up that facade when you're afraid that someone will find out what you're really like. My friend, we're all the same. We're all sinners. We all have problems. We all need a Savior. And until you come to that realization, you'll never truly be happy. So David does come to that realization. Finally, verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Again, one of the most amazing portions of Scripture in all the Bible. God forgives even horrible, heinous sin like David. By the way, if he forgives the greatest of sinners, he can forgive you. That's what Paul said. I'm the chief of sinners, and God saved me just to show that he can save everybody else. That's what David is saying, too. So David now senses forgiveness, and now he's in a new position. And now he's acting like a godly person who wants to follow the Lord. And he says in verse 6, Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you. That word faithful is a key word. It's translated godly in some of your Bibles. It's described in verse 5 as the person who confesses his sin and is honest with God. The faithful person is described in verse 10 as the one who trusts in the Lord. And in verse 11, as the one who walks in righteous paths, who is upright in heart. It's all referring to the same person. The one who has confessed and found forgiveness, and now wants to follow God. So now, David is going to give us not just the help we need, the forgiveness of sin for all of our past failure, but now hope for the future. Now he gives us something to counteract the fear of tomorrow. He gives us confidence that God is going to go with us every step of the way. So I have some blessings for you if you fit into that category of the godly person. Not perfect, but forgiven. Not perfect, but trusting. Not perfect, but seeking to walk in the righteous paths of God. I've got good news for you. Number one, he guards your life. And that's what we find in verse 6 and 7. He protects us. 
Notice the godly person is praying in verse 6. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of many waters, waters of judgment, are not going to reach the soul that's praying. It's not going to get to you. You're on safe ground. Praying is, is typical of the real child of God. Prayer is what we do when we have new life and we long to connect to the God who's given us that life. When Paul got converted, remember he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians? And God said to another Christian, Ananias, I want you to go and talk to Paul. He was called Saul at that time. Ananias said, I don't want to go talk to this guy. He's killing every Christian he finds. And the Lord said, behold, he prays. That's like God saying, he's a different man now. He's not persecuting, he's praying. He's totally changed. And by the way, if prayer can remove our greatest problem, sin, and the penalty of sin, cannot prayer then handle every other problem we face? Is it not adequate to deal with a wounded soul, financial difficulty, a broken relationship? The godly pray because God answers and delights in the prayers of those who trust him. He doesn't want us to be silent. He wants us to pray. He wants us to communicate with him, and that's what David is doing. So you have the invitation of prayer, but notice verse 6 talks about the limitation of prayer. Pray to him while he may be found. In other words, you won't have time to pray to God forever. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, right? So pray today. Today, if you hear his voice, respond. Today, if the Spirit speaks to you, respond. There's a sense of urgency here. Pray while he may be found. Because someday, you will not find God. Today is the hour of mercy, but tomorrow may be the day of judgment. And you need to be prepared. So there's an invitation to prayer. There's a limitation in prayer. But there's also an expectation to prayer. Verse 6. When you pray, the mighty waters of judgment are not going to reach you. Surely, to that person who trusts in the Lord, you can have this assurance, this expectation that my prayer will be answered. I like what J.C. Ryle said. They, the uh, wonderful saint from uh, the 19th century, he said, above all else, we should develop the habit of expecting our prayers to be answered. Now, some of you are doing all you can to develop the habit of prayer. That's good. Let me encourage you to go a step further. Develop the habit of expecting your prayers to be answered. Why? Because God is a prayer-hearing and a prayer-answering God. The book of James tells us if we pray, pray in faith. Don't let that man think he'll receive anything from the Lord who is double-minded and unstable in all his ways and doubting whether God will even hear or if he hears whether he cares to answer or if he cares to answer whether he has the power to do it. Any person who doubts, short-circuits prayer. So pray believing. Expect an answer. So he 
is the praying man, this faithful individual. And he's also a person who's found a hiding place. Look at verse 7. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble, and you will surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, this is a very interesting picture because earlier in the psalm, David was hiding from God. Now we find David hiding in God. That makes all the difference in the world. There's only two kinds of people. Those who are hiding from God and those who are hiding in God. The reason why there aren't more people here today, I suppose there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is people are hiding from God. And they're afraid that if they come to church, they're going to meet up with God, so they just as soon avoid him. What they don't realize is, yes, they'll be confronted by God who will point out their sin, but quickly comes to forgive. They'll be confronted by the God who loves them so much, he made them and longs to save them and longs to fellowship with them. He has your best in view. So are you hiding from God or are you hiding in God? David makes the change. He was miserable before. He was miserable. Now he is delighted, as we're going to see in just a moment. I love that song we often sing. Oh, safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflicts and sorrow would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. Oh, blessed rock of ages. What's the rest of it? I'm hiding in thee. I'm hiding in thee. Hiding in thee? Hiding in thee, thou blessed rock of ages. I'm hiding in thee. There's only one place to be safe, and that's in God. So David has now found this wonderful hiding place, and he is surrounded with songs of deliverance. You'll notice before, he was surrounded by misery, whether it was groaning within, the the spiritual stress of God's conviction on his soul, whether it was physical ailments. He had all of those things. Now he is surrounded with songs of deliverance. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But David has found a place of safety and a place of protection, and it's in praying and trusting in Jehovah, his hiding place. There's something else for the faithful man. Notice in verse 8, he guides my steps. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will advise you with my loving eye on you. It's as though the Lord now begins to speak to David. David said, you are my hiding place in verse 7. And Jehovah answers back, and I will guide you as well. I'll not only guard you, I'll not only protect you, I will guide you every step of the way. This, there's a promise in verse 8 that has four verbs that basically say the same thing. I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will advise you. And I will watch over you. The NIV puts the two together. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. But there are four different verbs saying the same thing. God wants to guide us. It's his promise. I'm not going to abandon you, nor am I just going to tell you the way to go and say, good luck. You know, like the teacher who has no concern about the pupil and says, this is how you do the problem. Do it yourself. 
Now, there's a time where you have to work on it yourself, but the teacher that sits by that student and helps them think through the problem and learn the process, that's the teacher with compassion. By the way, the, the picture seems to be that of a mother, so appropriate for today. A mother helping her child walk. This is how you do it. And if they fall, you're there to pick them up. And you're watching them every step of the way. You see, we have the Word of God, the Scriptures, to give us the path that we need to walk in. But we also have the presence of God to watch over us. We have the Word, and we have the watch. So, as Tiggy sang a moment ago, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. Why? His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. That's a great truth. God watches me. There's a verse in Proverbs 15, verse 3, that says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. I was sharing that as a verse for chapel with the Lugnuts a, a few years ago. That's the minor league baseball team, and, and I was doing a chapel with them one Sunday, and I shared that one verse. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. And I said, is that verse positive or negative? And someone shouted out, that's a bad verse. <laughs> a bad verse, why? Because I can't do anything that God doesn't see. There's no place to hide. Well, that's true. But conversely, when you're doing good things that no one sees, God does. It all depends on your relationship with the one who's watching. I remember in sixth grade when I was goofing around in the back of the class and Mrs. Hicks brought me all the way to the front and she said, Donnie, you're going to sit right in this front row. I've got my eye on you. That was the end of fun in the sixth grade. <laughs> that was bad. I've got my eye on you. But I said to the baseball players, remember the time when you were playing in high school and a, and a scout came from the Toronto Blue Jays and said, boy, we like what we see. You're a good player. We just want you to know we've got our eye on you. Well, that's good, isn't it? That's positive. And you long to play when someone you admire and respect is watching. God says, I've got my eye on you. You know what that means? He's got to stay right with us to watch over us. And he does. The loving, sovereign God is right there. But there's a word of warning, verse 9. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding. They must be controlled by a bit and a bridle, or they won't come to you, or they won't go where you want them to go. They must be controlled by pressure. But don't be like them. Did you know that David acted like an animal? He was like a horse, impulsive, running after his passions, controlled by his lust, driven without reason, an irrational being who thought he could get away with adultery and murder. And then he was like a mule. I'm not going to confess my sin. I'm not going to acknowledge it's mine. I'm not going to tell anybody. I don't care what God says. And you and I are often the same way, impulsive like the horse and stubborn like the mule. And God has to force us sometimes to get us into a place of obedience. But the whole point of the passage is, you're not an animal. So don't be like one. 
They have no understanding, verse 9. They're irrational beings. You're a rational being. God has given you a mind, and he longs to lead you through his truth. So the sensitive horse and the stubborn mule become examples that we shouldn't follow. We ought to have a tender heart that doesn't need to be forced to do the will of God because blessing is found in the path of obedience. But it doesn't stop there. You see, the faithful person has the wonderful blessing that God is going to guard his life, that God is going to guide his steps. But there's one final thing. He's also going to gladden your heart. I think David must have sat down on his throne a couple nights and said, I'll never sing again. Who was the sweet psalmist of Israel? David. Who wrote many songs of rejoicing and praise that lifted the people of God to the throne of grace and gladdened the heart of God? Who was able to see intricate theological points and put them into beautiful words of poetry and put them to music and play and sing? That was David. And I think David said, I'll never sing again. That's what sin does to you. That's what Satan does to you. He robs you of your song. He takes away your joy. But God restores it. And David is now going to sing. His heart is filled with gladness. Verse 10. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad. Be glad, you righteous ones. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. It's kind of like a summary, isn't it? David puts everyone into two categories. There's a man in our church by the name of William, and uh, he said to me, Pastor, did you see my picture on the front page of the Lansing State Journal? I said, no, I didn't. He says, well, there it is. And so he brought me a page from May 8th of the Lansing State Journal. There were two pictures. The top picture said uh, it was a murder case and someone was judged criminally insane. And a picture of that person was on the top. And the, and the bottom page was a picture of the day of prayer and the people who were huddled in the day of prayer at uh, City Hall. And he said, thankfully, I'm not in the first picture, I'm in the second picture. Yeah, by God's grace, I'm not in the first picture. I'm in the second picture. By God's grace, I'm not in verse 10, first part. I'm in verse 10 and verse 11. Thankfully, by God's grace, I'm not hiding from God. I'm hiding in God. What a difference grace makes. Now, did you note in verse 10, many are the woes of the wicked. The wicked are surrounded by woes. Everywhere they turn, whoa, whoa, whoa. Sorrow fills their heart. You want a description of it? Read verse 3 and 4 again. Everywhere you turn, the groaning of the spirit. Everywhere you turn, the physical strength is gone. Everywhere you turn, the conviction of God is there because you're running from God. You're trying to hide from him. You're not honest about your sin. You're deceptive. You're hypocritical. You're phony. But when you fess up, Verse 5, when you confess your sin, God forgives your sin. And now, those who trust the Lord, they're the faithful, they're the trusting ones, as it says in verse 10. They're the righteous, verse 11. 
The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. The righteous are surrounded by songs. Which one do you want to pick? The woes or the songs? You're going to be surrounded by something. By the way, if you go back to verse 7, David said, The Lord surrounds me with songs of deliverance. That was long before surround sound became popular. And this surround sound is divine. Everywhere you look, music. You turn here, God's joy. You turn here, God's joy. You turn here, God's joy. Everywhere you turn, you're surrounded by sounds of deliverance. And notice what else you're surrounded by. Verse 10, you're surrounded by God's unfailing love. It said in verse, uh, verse 11 that his love is unfailing, or verse 10, his love is unfailing. He rejoices over those who love him, who trust in him. That's what I want to be surrounded by. God doesn't just lead me from a distance. He surrounds me with his presence. He surrounds me with music of victory. He surrounds me with his unfailing love. The woes of the ungodly never cease, and the love of God never ceases. That's the way it ends. David thought he was washed up. But no, God had something for him. Washed up, that's an interesting American idiom, isn't it? I did a little research on that, and I found it appears to have started in the world of the theater. At the end of a day, an actor would wash up their face and take off the makeup after their final performance. So when they were finished for the day, they would wash up. Some wise producer said to an act that was really bad, hey, you guys are washed up. <laughs> And I don't mean just for the day, I mean for good. You're washed up. I, I found this interesting quote, too. When Ronald Reagan uh, came on the scene, this is from Newsweek, it said he was one of the most underestimated men in American politics. They said he's just a washed-up movie actor. He's too simple, he's too old, and he's too far right to be president. And then he was elected. So many people will tell you, you're washed up. What sin did you commit? <gasps> oh, my word. I can't believe anyone would sin like that. That's a horrible sin, and sin is horrible. But then they give the impression that, that's it. You're washed up. Sorry. No hope for you. My friend, you can sing again. If David did, you can. If God can forgive David and put a song in his heart again and surround him with songs of mercy and deliverance, don't, he think, don't you think he can help you? Why run from him? Run to him. Why ignore him? Trust him. Why live the part of a phony? Be honest. And God will fill you with protection and instruction and celebration. And it will never end. I like what Charles Swindoll said. God is a specialist at making something beautiful out of something broken. The files of heaven are filled with the stories of redeemed and restored 
rebels and renegades, just like you. And God can make you over again. There's a wonderful testimony that comes from a soldier out of history. His name is Major John Andre, born in England, and in 1771 joined the British Army. He was actually in one of the battles, captured and made a POW for over a year, was released. He was a strong Christian of outstanding character, and he became the chaplain for the British Army and then was elevated to the position of major. But I told you he joined the British in 1771, joined the army. In 1776, the colonists declared their independence. And Major John Andre was sent to America to help win back the colonists. He negotiated with an American general. And this general's name was Benedict Arnold. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> Benedict Arnold, great American general. By the way, we wouldn't have won the Revolutionary War had it not been from his leadership in early battles. But Benedict Arnold became a turncoat, which is another interesting phrase coming to us from the Revolutionary War. He went from blue to red and wanted to go back to his homeland. Actually, he went from red to blue to red, but we won't get into that. Arnold wanted to go back in sympathy to England. He negotiated with Major John Andre in Terrytown, I think it was, or maybe it was in Terrytown. John Andre, after that negotiation, was captured in Terrytown. This was 1780, somewhere around there. Taken then before a council, and General George Washington said, you're guilty. He was tried as a spy and sentenced to be executed by hanging. While he was held, John Andre won the hearts of all of his captors, including General George Washington. They were both believers, and they had much in common. But a few days before he was executed, I mean, what would you do with the fear of death looming before you? Now, he's a strong believer, so he sat down and wrote a poem I call it a hymn, and it's, it's really his conversion story, and it's so amazing, and it touches on verse 7 of this psalm. I just wanted to share it with you. It starts out like this. Hail sovereign love, which first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail sovereign, free, eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Then he thought about his own conversion. Against the God who ruled the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high, despised the mention of his grace, too proud to seek a hiding place, enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light. Madly I ran the sinful race, secure, without a hiding place. Thus the eternal counsel ran. Almighty love arrest that man, I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. 
indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew. In other words, I'll go to the law. I'll obey the law of Moses. I'll keep the commandments. That will make me right with God. But justice cried with frowning face, this mountain is no hiding place. Ere long, a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy's angel soon appeared. He led me on with gentle pace to Jesus as my hiding place. On him, almighty vengeance fell, which must have sunk a world to hell, and he bore it for a sinful race, and thus became their hiding place. And then three days before he was executed, he wrote these words. A few more rolling suns at most shall land me on fair Canaan's coast, where I shall sing the song of grace and see my glorious hiding place. That's the gospel. The gospel is we are sinners, and we're running from God, and the wages of sin is death, but God loves you so much he sent Jesus to die for you, and he says, hide in me. The wrath of God is coming on sinners. Hide in me. I'll wash all your sin away, no matter how grievous, no matter how vile, and I will make you a new creature. And not only that, I will guard you, and I will guide you, and I will put a song back in your soul. So the question is this, are you hiding from God, or are you hiding in God? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this hope of heaven and grace that is greater than all of our sin. Thank you, Lord, that that even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord, that you forgave David and Paul, the chief of sinners. And thank you, Lord, that you invite us to pray and to trust and to confess our sin. And when we do, with honesty and sincerity, when we no longer live in deceit, you forgive our sin. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness and you actively guide and lead our life to paths of blessing and paths of righteousness and paths of singing. Lord, there's someone here this morning who needs you and I don't know who they are, but they need you. They've been running from you and I pray today that they will stop running and stop hiding and cry out, Lord, forgive me of my sin. And you have said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. May they take up that promise today. In Jesus' name, amen.